Well, friends, I ask that you would turn in your Bibles again to Mark chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, Mark is the second gospel in the New Testament. You have Matthew and then you have Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 10. And since it's been a couple of weeks since I was with you, I want to get a running start on the text we'll consider for this morning. I remind you that as we plop down in in Mark 10, Jesus and his little band of disciples are en route to Jerusalem for the last time. Awaiting him there is the climax of his suffering. In a few days, the one who is called the man of sorrows will face in Jerusalem mocking, spitting, scourging, almost to the point of death, and then a cruel, agonizing, and inhumane form of execution on a Roman cross, followed by his glorious resurrection from the dead. We know by the plain announcements that he has made to his disciples that um, these events coming up, this suffering coming up, is very much occupying the mind of Jesus, and we might say dominating his emotions. How singularly inappropriate it is then When two of his disciples, James and John, come up to Jesus and they say, can we sit on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom? It's clear. They don't have a clue as to what is coming. They don't have a clue as to what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing in. But however pained Jesus might have been by their insensitive and ignorant words, he answers them very patiently. And he focuses not on glory. Eventually there will be glory, but he tries to focus their attention on what they're not understanding, that what is coming up is suffering. Suffering will be the path to glory, both for himself and for his followers. The other 10 disciples do no better. When they hear that James and John have requested these positions of honor at the right and left hand of Jesus, we're told that they were indignant. We like to think that they were indignant in the sense that how dare you ask Jesus this when he's so preoccupied with his upcoming sufferings. But that doesn't appear to be the case. It seems that they were indignant because they they had the same ambition for glory and power and honor. And they were afraid that James and John were going to beat them to the punch. That's why they were indignant. How do we know that? Because Jesus then gathers all of them together, all 12, and he reminds them of what constitutes true greatness in the kingdom of God. Remember the words from verse 42 and following, calling them to himself, he said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be Slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life on ransom for many. What follows then, or what Jesus is doing here, is he's calling them to a radical paradigm shift. The the rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers of the nations of the world, their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, they seek to claw their way to the top of the pyramid and stand on top of everyone else. He says, in your kingdom, the pyramid is inverted. As one commentator, Lenski, says, the great ones in Christ's kingdom don't climb to the top of the 
pyramid, they bear the pyramid on their back. The greatest ones in his kingdom are not the lords over others. They are the servants of others. That's what great, constitutes greatness in his kingdom. And then what follows is the last healing miracle that Mark records Jesus performing. And it's a beautifully fitting sequel to this teaching about servanthood. Because what we're going to see in this event is that Jesus Christ is the perfect and supreme embodiment of that lowly servanthood. He is the great exemplar, the great example for all time of what it means to be a great servant. And our text is verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He's, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now, before we get into the text, I just want to note quickly that in Matthew's version of this story, he includes two blind men. Mark and Luke have only one. Matthew says there were two blind men. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. It's just that Mark and Luke chose to focus on this one blind man. Perhaps he was more vocal. Perhaps there was some reason to focus on him. It's not a contradiction. Mark is not denying that there were two. He's just focusing on this one man, Bartimaeus. Well, let's look first at the condition of Bartimaeus. Verse 46, they came to Jericho. He was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, with a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting by the road. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. He has crossed the Jordan River and he's come to Jericho, which is about 15 miles north and east of Jerusalem, which is his destination. And accompanying him was a great multitude. They were no doubt headed for the annual Passover celebration. And as they're leaving Jericho, the crowd along with Jesus, pass a certain man named Bartimaeus. What was his condition? It was evident from where we find him. He is not walking with the crowd. He's not standing. He is sitting down by the roadside. He was blind. Now, friends, today, blind people are able to function in a very, very well in society and to live very productive lives, aren't they? because of the invention, the development of Braille, the training of seeing eye dogs, the transmission of information by means of modern technology, it has helped to level the playing field for blind people. 
I read recently that advanced artificial intelligence technology has created something the size of a person's finger that can tell a blind person what the object is in front of him and even the color of that object. Did you know that three people climbed Mount Everest blind? An American in 2001, an Austrian in 2007, and just last May, the first Chinese person climbed Mount Everest blind. Now that's a death-defying feat if you have your sight and all your faculties in perfect health. Not everybody makes it alive, but to do it blind is quite amazing. And so in our day, blind people are able to function pretty well, but not so in the first century. Blindness then was so debilitating, it was so incapacitating, that it reduced you to the state of a beggar, wholly cast upon the mercy of others. And beggars were a common sight in that day. Well, that was the lot of Bartimaeus. He was a blind beggar. He would have sat with his garment outstretched on the ground to collect alms on the side of the road. His condition was miserable, very needy, very helpless, very dependent, in a real sense, very hopeless. But look next at the cry of Bartimaeus to Jesus, verse 47 and 48. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. What was the disposition behind that cry? It was a cry for mercy. Friends, mercy comes not from a heart of self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency. When you cry for mercy, you're crying from the posture of need. I need help. I'm cast upon the mercy of other people. I don't have it all together. I can't make it on my own. I need mercy. When you read the Psalms, oftentimes the psalmist in his desperate affliction, is crying out for grace and mercy. Psalm 41.1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 6.2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. It's, it's from a, a posture of, of need and, and misery and wretchedness that one cries for mercy. What was the direction of his cry? It wasn't an indiscriminate cry into the air. Well, somebody help me. Mercy, somebody. No, it was a focused, directed cry. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Matthew's version informs us that the blind man, or the blind men in his case, heard that Jesus was passing by. How did they know? How did he know, lying on the side of the road, that it was Jesus passing by? Perhaps someone told him, hey, it's Jesus. Or perhaps the name of Jesus was just being buzzed through the crowd and he picked it up. You know how it is sometimes when one of our faculties is weakened or lost, God enables the other faculties to be strengthened. So it could well be that his hearing was very keen. He had no eyesight, but his hearing could have been very keen. Somehow he knew that Jesus was passing by. And so his cry is a directed cry. It's a focused cry, not just indiscriminate, but Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We might say it's a somewhat enlightened cry. Notice he calls Jesus son of David. 
Son of David was one of Jesus' messianic titles in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, made popular through Handel's Messiah, says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. That was speaking of the coming Messiah or Christ prophetically, and that he will sit on the throne of David. A couple chapters later, Isaiah 11.1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in what we know as the triumphal entry, which is coming up in a few weeks here, the crowd shouted, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So this man knew something about Jesus. He was certainly ahead of those who simply consider Jesus a prophet or Elijah. He knew that he was the son of David. He knew that there was a kingdom that he had come to bring. We're not saying that he had a full understanding of what that kingdom was. Certainly the disciples did not. But he knew something about this son of David, that he would be a deliverer, and perhaps he could be of help to me. So Bartimaeus directs his cry to Jesus believing that this Nazarene could help him. But notice also the determination in his cry. As the cries of this blind beggar pierced the air, the people around him tried to shut him up. They were sternly telling him to be quiet. The word in the Greek means to rebuke or to censure severely. It's the same word used when the disciples were were rebuking the parents who were trying to bring their children to Jesus. And Jesus said, don't hinder them. I want the children to come to me. They were rebuking, sternly censuring the parents. Well, here, the people were sternly trying to shut up this man. Why? Well, we're not told. It could be that beggars in general, which were very common, were just an annoyance to the people. It could be that You know, they thought Jesus is such a dignified person. He's not going to have any time for you. Why are you crying out to him? They were no no doubt focused on Jesus coming to Jerusalem and, as they thought, bringing in this glorious conquering kingdom. And they had no time for this blind beggar lying on the side of the road. Shut up. Be quiet. He's got no time for you. But he was not deterred or diminished in his cries by their efforts. It says, but he kept crying all the more. Why did he do that? Was he being spiteful and insolent? You can imagine one of your children crying out and one of his brothers or sisters saying, oh, be quiet. And the little guy or girl is probably going to shout all the more, right? Out of childish insolence. I don't think it was spitefulness or insolence I think it comes from his desperation and determination, his sense of his wretched condition, his desire to be set free from the misery of his blindness and his begging. And he didn't care what other people thought. He wasn't concerned about social propriety and and niceness. He was consumed with his wretched condition and the desire to be free from it. And so there was a determination in his cry. So we have the cry of Bartimaeus to Jesus the disposition from a sense of neediness, I need mercy, the direction it was aimed at Jesus, and the determination he would not be deterred or diminished in his cry by the crowd around him. And then we have the call of Jesus to Bartimaeus, verse 49. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. I want us to see the condescension of the call. Now, condescension means to stoop from a position of rank or dignity, to lower oneself. And sometimes we use it in a negative way. If we speak of condescension, we talk of someone looking down at someone else with an air of superiority. I'm not using it that way here. I'm using the word condescension in its purest, holiest sense possible. In the sense that here is the Lord of glory, the glorious Son of Man and Son of God, and he stops and he stoops in utter humility to help somebody who is a nobody in the earth. Consider the setting. Jesus is only days away from Jerusalem where unspeakable suffering awaits him. And he knows it. We don't know what awaits us. If we're going to hear tomorrow about the death of a loved one, if we're going to get in a serious car crash, but we go into the future ignorant, blissfully of what's going to happen. Jesus was facing his suffering with full knowledge of what was coming because he'd already forewarned his disciples as to what was coming down. And he was fully man. And the sense of foreboding, the cloud of sorrow was already descending upon him. Now I ask, what would we be doing in a similar situation? Sometimes we have big events coming up. If you are, were in school or in college, you have a big final exam that's going to determine your grade for the semester. You have a presentation to make at work. You have a big project coming up at work and you don't know how you're going to get it done and if you have the resources for it. You have some musical performance where you're going to have a solo role. Or if you're an athlete, you've got a big game coming up. When something big is on the horizon for us, what characterizes us? We're usually turned inward and focused on our own preparation and kind of nursing our own emotions, aren't we? I get to do weddings, and sometimes I feel convicted that as I'm in the back room with the groom, and I, I really should be encouraging him and speaking words of joy to him, and sometimes I get too preoccupied with what I'm going to say in the wedding, and it convicts me. Why am I so self-focused? I should be rejoicing with this man. It's his big day. Forget what I'm going to say, but my self-centeredness causes me. I want to make sure that I say everything right. We're very self-absorbed and self-preoccupied when some big deal is coming up for us, right? But look at Jesus. Unimaginable sorrow and pain looms over his head, but he's focused on the needs of others. What utter selflessness. What beautiful servanthood. What unmatched compassion. And consider the distance he stooped. Friends, here is the Son of God on his way to perform that act which is the focal point of all human history. The whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus coming and dying on the cross. Every time since looks back upon that great event. He is, as it were, climbing the mountain to the apex of redemptive history. That's what the whole plan of salvation is about. That God's Son would eventually come and die. And he's about, what he's about to do in Jerusalem will affect the eternal destiny 
of millions, if not billions of people, reversing their destiny from hell-bound to heaven-bound. But he is stopped dead in his tracks by the pitiful cries of a blind beggar. How revealing of Jesus is this? How grand is this? How noble is this? Here is the long-awaited Messiah, the, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's finishing his long, arduous work, his face like a, set like a flint to carry out his mission and to fulfill his Father's will. The holy elect angels, if I may say it reverently, are leaning over the balcony of heaven to watch the unfolding of this drama of redemption. And he stopped by his own inward constraint at the moanful wails of some marginalized, despised social outcast groveling in the dust, crying for mercy. Everybody else embarrassed by his cries, trying to shut him up, looking at him with glares and sneers. And the Son of God cannot take one step further toward Jerusalem before he meets the needs of this blind beggar. What loving condescension. What humble servanthood. Friends, behold your Savior. This is Jesus. He is Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen incarnate, where Yahweh says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of humble and contrite spirit. Here is Jesus, the supreme servant. Here is our great pattern for imitation. But then there's also courage inspired by the call. When Jesus calls the man as mediated through the crowd, the crowd changes its tune. Instead of shutting him up, they say, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. They knew that when Jesus singled somebody out in the crowd, it was reason for encouragement. But then we see the coming of Bartimaeus to Jesus in verses 50 and 51. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Who knows how much hope Bartimaeus really entertained of getting through to Jesus and getting help from Jesus. He probably saw it as a shot in the dark. He couldn't see Jesus but his keen hearing told him there was a big crowd around him. Why should he be singled out for special attention? But he probably thought, look, what do I have to lose? Am I going to make more enemies? I mean, these people already despise me. I couldn't get any lower on the social ladder than I am. I've got every, nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so when he gets the call, his joy must have been unbounded. And he comes to Jesus. He comes swiftly. He wastes no time. He no doubt had a rush of adrenaline. He throws aside his, his, his garment, which was collecting the, um, the, the alms. And he comes with a single-minded focus on Jesus. He's thinking, if Jesus is calling me, I'm coming. And he seems to come believingly. Why do I say that? Because verse 51 says, as he comes, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Why does Jesus do that? He often interacts personally with the ones he's going to heal. Friends, he does this because Jesus is not a miracle machine. He's not a healing vendor. 
He doesn't want people to respond to his power, but to his person. And he wants to bring them into a, a deeper personal relationship to himself. He wants to awaken and deepen their faith. Remember with the crippled man that's lowered in front of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, he first says, your sins are forgiven, to show him what really matters. With the woman in chapter 5, she touches his garment and she's healed. He doesn't let it go at that, but he calls her out of the crowd to her somewhat sheepishness, but he wants to draw out her faith. Remember the Syrophoenician woman? He gave her a hard time because he wanted to draw out her faith in himself. And so when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It might be obvious. He's a blind man. He can't see. Why does Jesus say that? I think it's because he wants to draw him into a personal relation to himself. What do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to do for you what everybody else can do? Give you some alms? That's what you're asking for with your outspread garment? Or do you want me to do for you something that nobody else can do for you? Otherwise, they would have done it by now. And I think he's drawing out the man's faith. He calls him Rabboni, which is an even more respectful greeting than the typical rabbi. And he says, I want to regain my sight. And then finally, we see the cure of Bartimaeus by Jesus. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's note several things about the cure that Jesus brings about. What was the cause of the cure? It was simply the will of Jesus. You know how in the beginning, and we studied this this morning in Sunday school, God said, let there be, and there was, out of nothing, ex nihilo, God says, let there be, and what was not comes into being. Well, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And he will, when he wills that where there is no sight, there is going to be sight, there is sight. And so it's the will of Jesus that creates sight in this blind man instantaneously. But it's not merely the will of Jesus. It is the compassion of Jesus. Divine power and compassion are combined in our Lord. You see, if he merely had power but no compassion, we might dread him because we don't know what he's going to do with that power. If he had compassion but no power, we might have kind thoughts of him. But how could we trust him? He'd like to do something for us, but he's really powerless to help us. But in Jesus Christ, we have both power and compassion. He has both. What was the content of his cure? Well, he, he had his sight restored, but was that all? Was he only healed of his blindness? Well, the text reads, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. By these words, we have reason to believe, I think, that he had more than a physical healing here. But that might have been the day of his spiritual salvation. Why do I say that? Because on another occasion, when Jesus said, your faith has saved you, it was in Mark chapter 5, where he's dealing with the woman who had that issue of blood. And she was cured by Jesus. But Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
And the Hebrew idea of peace, shalom, is not just a superficial peace. It's a whole-souled peace that is born of peace with God. And so when he affirmed Bartimaeus' faith, it is likely that he was saying that Bartimaeus had faith in Jesus not merely to heal his eyes, but to heal his soul. And we have good reason to believe that Bartimaeus came away from Jesus that day not merely with seeing eyes, but with a seeing soul. What was the condition of his cure? His faith. Your faith has made you well. What had stopped Jesus on the road? His faith. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. At the voice of prayer, the son of righteousness paused in his progress. Believing cries can hold the son of God by the feet. Faith is what honors our Lord. And faith in himself from a humble, broken, helpless, believing one will not be spurned. It will not be rejected. It will be the means of unleashing the grace and help of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the consequence of his cure? Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Friends, when people believe in Jesus savingly, they always follow him. And they follow him for the rest of their lives. Consequence of belief in Jesus is lifelong devotion to Jesus. Well, that's my exposition. Let's take a few minutes now and ask what should we do with this text The Bible is not written merely to inform our minds and to fill us with information. It is written to shape our lives. And with this text, I think we can look in three directions. First of all, let's again see Jesus Christ rightly for who he really is. He is one who is full of compassion one who has an ear out for the cries of the needy and desperate who look to him. He is no respecter of one's outward standing. There are no little people with Jesus. There are no unimportant people with Jesus. And I encourage you to rivet this particular narrative in your mind as a picture of Jesus. 46 years ago, I was a senior in seminary. And as seminary students, we needed to give a senior sermon. And for some reason, I chose this text to preach on in my senior sermon. For the last 46 years as a Christian, this has been a picture, a beautiful picture in my mind of the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to rivet this narrative in your mind's eye. Again, here is the Son of God the Lord of glory, God incarnate, on his way to that event which would be the climax of redemptive history and all of human history up to this point. He will give himself as a substitute for countless lost sinners and will reverse their eternal destiny. And he catches the cries of one of society's rejects, a cast-off lying by the roadside, a beggar, And he is stopped dead in his tracks and will not take one step further toward his destination until he deals with this blind man. 
see your Lord for who he is. Never see yourself as one who is beyond or beneath his love and compassion. And please present this Jesus, this compassionate Jesus to others. With all that was occupying his mind, all the suffering that was in front of him less than a week away, he had time when no one else did to deal with a blind beggar lying in the dust because he cares, because he's full of compassion. That's the Jesus we trust. That's the Jesus we need to present to others. And then I say for believers, we need to see Jesus as our example and our help in our servanthood. You see, it's not by accident that Mark, as directed by the Holy Spirit, juxtaposes these two things. Right after Jesus tells them, look, the greatest in my kingdom are not those who lord it over, but those who serve, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Right after that, Mark records this incident where the Son of God, on his way to suffer for the sins of the world, has time for a blind beggar lying on the roadside. What is he saying? You want to know what servanthood looks like? Here it is. Not by my words, but what I have just done. And so for us as Christians, Jesus is our supreme example of servanthood. And are we not all too, still too self-centered? Are we not still too self-absorbed? And so I I ask you, should not the example of Jesus here pour contempt on all of our pride and maybe pour contempt on our prejudices? And I ask us, where do we need to die more to our self-centeredness and become better servants with Jesus as our example? Is it in your speaking? Are you one who, as I sometimes feel is true of myself, talk too much about yourself? and don't take an interest in others. Are you good at asking questions? Some of you are very good at that. Some of you ask me from time to time, how are your headaches, Pastor? I so appreciate that. Some of you are full of questions, and you're an example to me. Some of you, if you reflect, you rarely ask the question, so how are you doing? Always talking about yourself and your own things. How often are these words falling from your lips? How are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? What's new with you? Even our little three-and-a-half-year-old has been trained to say, so how was your day? It's so cute. She's parroting mom and dad, but that's a good way to be a parrot, right? How was your day? How did you sleep, grandpa? And may she continue that into her adult years. Maybe it's in our words that we're too self-absorbed. Um, Is it in your time? Are you spending too much time indulging your own pleasures and not enough investing in in serving others? Is there too much self-pity, too much feeling sorry for yourself, too much time spent licking your own wounds rather than seeking to be a balm to the hurts of others? Is it in your home? Are you one who's concerned to meet the needs of others or looking to be served by your brothers and sisters and others? How about at work? Are you known as a servant, as you're known as one who's trying to build others up and help them to succeed in their work or just to succeed for yourself? In the church, are you using your gifts to build up the body of Christ? 
Let's let the example of Jesus' humble servanthood be in the forefront of our minds as we seek to further die to selfishness and to serve others. And let's look to him for the grace that he will give us to be better servants. And then finally, for unbelievers, I think here we have a pattern of gospel salvation. This narrative, this scenario gives us a picture of what it means to come to Jesus for salvation. First of all, there's the condition of Bartimaeus. What was it? He was a blind beggar. He was totally at the mercy of others. He was in a miserable, wretched condition physically. And you know what? If you haven't yet come to Jesus Christ, that's your condition spiritually. It doesn't matter how you're fixed in this world. It doesn't matter how well-liked you are in society, how well-respected you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are in business, in work. It doesn't matter how successful in your relationships. It doesn't matter if you are in perfect physical health. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, God looks at you in a wretched condition. You are blind to the truth of God. You are cut off from a relationship to God. You are, according to the Bible, under the wrath of God. And you are headed for eternal separation from God if you are to die in that condition. So if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, you need to become like Bartimaeus, dissatisfied with your condition, aware that your condition, condition is wretched. You need to be plagued by your sins and your separation from God and see yourself as an enemy of God and one who has offended God and deserves the wrath of God. But then there's the cry of Bartimaeus. It was a cry for mercy. And if you're an unbeliever, like Bartimaeus, you need to cry to Jesus for mercy. Stop trying to be good enough for God. You can never be good enough. You'd have to be perfect, and you'll never be good enough. Jesus was good enough. Jesus was perfect. Stop trying to pay for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. Jesus died to pay for your sins. You need to stop trying and trust. Trying needs to turn to trusting in Jesus, who lived the perfect life you could not live and then died the death in your place so that all your sins could be put on him. And if you cry for mercy to Jesus, he will hear you. He will be merciful and he will save you. And let me tell you what that salvation will look like. It means that your sins will be instantaneously forgiven, all of them, all past sins, all future sins, because the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you come to Jesus for mercy, he will create in you a new nature, a nature by which you will be changed, and all of a sudden you'll love things you never loved before. I want to read the Bible. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be holy. And you'll hate things you never hated before, like your sin and your selfishness and your pride. He will give you a new nature. He will not only forgive your sins and cleanse your record, he will change you. And at that moment, your eternal destiny will change. Your future destiny will be to live with God, initially in heaven and eventually on a new earth, where you will live with perfected spirit and body forever with God and with his people. And the consequences of coming to Jesus, if you cry to Jesus for mercy, as did Bartimaeus, and he saves you, the consequences will be, the result will be just like it was. It says he followed Jesus on the road. But if you come to Jesus and he saves you, you will follow him. All the days of your life, you will follow him. 
I love Wesley's hymn in the fourth stanza of that hymn. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, a life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And so wilt thou, so will you. If you're saved by Jesus, you will follow him all your days. Before we pray or sing, I just want to now apply this to the two young men that are being baptized in a few minutes here, Paul Stowe and R.J. Jones. The reason they're being baptized today is because something has happened to them. They have cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy and salvation, and he has granted it to them. You see, going under that water will not do anything to change them. If somebody goes under the water as a dry, lost sinner, that one will come out of the water as a wet, lost sinner. The water of baptism will do nothing. The water of baptism is a picture of something that has already happened. You see, when I put these young men under the water, that is a picture of death, a picture that that says they have died to the old life of sin and selfishness that they once lived. They're dying, but I'm going to bring them up, be assured, out of the water. And that rising up is a picture of what the Bible calls a resurrection to newness of life. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ has not only forgiven them, but he has changed them. And now they're walking in newness of life. The water doesn't change them. It's just a picture of something that has already happened. It's like a wedding ring. If I can get my wedding ring off, my finger is not so swollen. I'm getting it off. Taking off my wedding ring. And am I going to say, uh-oh, honey, I'm sorry. We're not married anymore. I just took off my wedding. No. No, the wedding ring doesn't make us married, does it? The wedding ring is a picture, signifies that there's a relationship. Whether I have the wedding ring or not, like baptism. Baptism doesn't marry you to God. It's a picture of the fact that by faith you've been married to Jesus Christ. And it's a symbol. It's a picture. It's a public testimony that you're unashamed of being a follower of Jesus. Well, let's pray, and then we'll sing a hymn as the young men come. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this beautiful picture of your great compassion, that with the thoughts of your horrific suffering and death, weighing on your mind, you had time, you made time for a blind beggar. Everyone else was trying to shut up, call him and to heal him because you care, because you're one who responds to the cries for mercy. You did then and you do now. Thank you for being the savior that you are. For those who are here who have not yet come to you, may they see that you are an open-armed, willing, compassionate savior, and all they need to do is cry for mercy. You will hear them, and you will come to them, and you will save them. Thank you. In Jesus' name.